Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the second Sunday in Advent. It comes from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 36. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. Jesus said, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this light, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. All right, in terms of context, liturgically, I I looked again at Fred Lindemann's The Sermon on the Propers, Volume 1, and it's pages 41 and following. And for the life of me, I know that I've read these, but... I I don't remember just how good they were. So he says this, uh, and I'm just going to pull out a few quotes here. He says, this Sunday completes the Advent cycle. The message of the first Sunday was, your king is coming, prepare. The propers spoke of his visible coming to Jerusalem in humility and meekness on his way to the cross. This was a picture of his constant coming in his word and sacrament, invisible without outward glory and power. The message of the second Sunday is, your king is coming again, visibly and in power and glory, to deliver his own from all evil. It is a message of encouragement and hope. And then on the introit, the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation comes. Many ignore and reject the Lord now, but the day is coming when his majestic voice will fill his enemies with terror. However, this is not the heart of today's message. The teaching of the day is addressed to the faithful. Behold, thy salvation cometh. You shall be delivered from your enemies. All who receive the king as he comes to his Zion in word and sacrament, all who remain faithful unto the end, shall then have gladness of heart. And then on the collect, stir up our hearts, O Lord, to make ready the way of thine only begotten Son, so that by his coming we may be enabled to serve thee with pure minds. He says, we can no longer make ready for the first advent. 
This lies in the past, but our Lord's first advent is a picture of the constant coming to his church in word and sacrament. This is the connection established by the collect between the commemoration of the first coming in the lowliness and the second advent in glory. All gladness of heart at the prospect of the king's coming in glory is possible only if his first and his constant coming enable us to serve him with pure minds. I mean, this is just great stuff. Yeah. I agree. I haven't read it in a long time either. I mean, the other sources, you know, Parsha's Year of Grace, which mm-hmm. I also haven't looked at in a long time. But <clears throat> Lindemann is, of course, Lutheran. So right. it's, it's uh, you know, yeah. But if I remember Parsha's correctly, not. Lind- Lindemann uh, relies heavily and even draws from Parsh quite a bit. Oh, I, I think by modern standards, flat out plagiarism. Oh. I mean, he, he copies paragraphs almost word for word without without citation though he does give the he does cite in like a bibliography uh parsh mm-hmm. i think in maybe it's at the end of volume four but he doesn't uh, he doesn't quote him even though he is quoting him often mm-hmm. so yeah yeah i wonder if that was I, him I, or I if know. it was the cph editors like they didn't want to i don't know they didn't want to quote the 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 papist I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems. What What's the publication year on that? Is it in the fifties? Is it later? Uh, let me look real quick. Nineteen fifty-eight. I mean, you know, I mean the the standard for for that kind of stuff has changed, you know, over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do think we're probably. I mean, I don't know. Fifty-eight's not that long ago, but probably the standards were looser than they are now. Yeah, but sure. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's great stuff. I there's also I think kind of an inter, I think he's right, you know, the the connection between the three comings, you know, uh which are introduced on the first Sunday and then this being very much focused on the coming in glory. There's also a kind of John the Baptist connection too through the Old Testament because you have the Malachi text about you know, the Elijah who's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and then the next two Sundays the gospels are you know, three and four, it's uh, John the Baptist in prison and then John the Baptist's confession. Mm. So there's a little bit of that, I think, you know, seasonal connection as well. Do we get, there's no John the Baptist on the first Sunday. No. I guess. Yeah. I mean, there wouldn't be in this one really if it wasn't for the, uh, for the Malachi reading. But I, I do think that that's an, that Malachi reading is a nice tie because yeah. it's eschatological, but but it also you know so yeah the, I, mean, I don't know what to do with it. It's just sort of there. <laughs> yeah, uh, the only connection would be that this is the way of the Lord entering into Jerusalem, but it's kind of, you'd have to make a a few few leaps. Yeah, in terms of John on the first Sunday, yeah, correct, yeah. Uh, but on this on this Sunday, I mean, you do have a correspondence that John is an eschatological preacher. Even though he's preparing them, you know, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. I mean, he's he's preparing them for that first coming, but it's simultaneously, obviously, right? Also preparation for the final coming. So, Well, I mean, and that's the distinction. Anyway, that's the seasonal. That, that would be a good question for the third Sunday. Like, what did he expect? Yeah, I know. I mean, like so many of the prophets, well, we they, can... they, you know, you talk about the prophetic vision that they put forward and 
sometimes it seems muddled uh, from their perspective. If we look back, like, okay, here's Christ, but here's also second coming. And um, it looks like one singular event to them. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think it looks like one single event to creation itself. I think creation gets confused at the crucifixion. That's why the graves bust oh, open. Oh, yeah. Okay. And you have the you have these signs from the end, you know, the earthquake, the sun going dark. I mean, these, you know, it's like the I think creation itself, even in the moment, there's a kind of and I mean confusion is overstatement, but but there is this overlap between between the two events because of course, right, the the Jesus being lifted up from the cross is his glorification, mm-hmm. and that is the you know that is the eternal moment, the defining reality for all of all of history. So, yeah, I, I mean, the fact that the I think it's funny that we talk about the the prophets being confused as though we have clear understanding. <laughs> you know? I didn't. I didn't mean it like that. I meant like. <laughs> I, no, I, we all do it. I wasn't. I wasn't picking on you in particular, but I mean, it is kind of there. There is this arrogance of modernity. That that thinks that we are more advanced than our forefathers, and w- there's a kind of feigning of humility where we'll talk about, well, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, but but really the the implication is we're higher than them. We see more clearly than they do, right? Because we're standing on their shoulders. Uh, but I'm not sure we're really standing on their shoulders all the time. I think sometimes, you know. <laughs> So I don't I don't mean that just I mean there is there is a kind of progressive revelation in the sense that you know more is made clear over time and in terms of the New Testament clarifying much and bestowing upon us things that they long to look into absolutely uh, no, no question of that that that's that's real uh, at the same time you know there is this sort of modern arrogance you know within the New Testament era too like. I mean, I've. I mean, how many times have you heard people talk as though, uh, you know, they've got, they've come. For, they're, they're more Lutheran than Luther, right? <laughs> you know, Luther was still corrupted by his whatever medieval ideas. I mean, in this, I think this, uh, it's really evident in sort of exegetical opinions because the way that modern exegesis is done is so radically different than the way exegesis was done historically in the church. And we tend to look with great suspicion and kind of, you know, um, condescension upon the patristic commentaries because they're not interested in the same sort of historical details and context that we are. Mm -hmm. We care a lot about the human author and the human audience, the initial ones, and they care a lot more about God (laughs) and what he's doing. So anyway. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So. Uh, then, I mean, let's just turn to the biblical t- context then. It, this comes after the three questions, at least in Luke, uh, ab- right. by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, either about paying taxes to Caesar or the resurrection. And that's where you get that story from Tobit about the the the, the wife and the seven brothers. Um, and then the widow's might. Uh, and then you get this long like, end times discussion. Uh, and this falls, right. our text falls right in the middle of it, doesn't it? Uh, right at the end of it, isn't it? Oh, no. oh, we do stop short of the end. No, it goes all the way to the end. Yeah, it goes to the end. 36. I'm, yeah, I have it. So we pick yeah, up no in problem. the middle and go to the end. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and really, it's so the question is asked, um, 
there's this observation of the temple in verse 5 of chapter 21, and then Jesus says, all can be torn down. And then they say, uh, when will these things be? What sign will there be? And then he goes into this, right, a whole bunch of eschatological stuff about uh, false messiahs, terrors, wars, persecutions, which are opportunities for witness, betrayals, martyrdoms, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. All of this is a reason to pray for relief. And then finally, after, you know, what, 24, or I guess 20 verses, he finally says, here's what the signs are, starting in (laughs) verse 25. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, in in a way, those are all signs, but but the kind of real explicitly, explicit signs that the end is upon us then starts. And then right after this, uh, this is this is almost immediately before Holy Week, right? Because the next thing is going to be the Passover is drawing near. And um, when's Palm Sunday in Luke? Or this is already Holy Week. Are they yeah, already in Holy already, Week? He's already entered Jerusalem, I'm sorry, yeah. He? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. This is in Holy Week. Okay. Sorry, I got confused there. He's already cleansed So yeah, the so what's going to come? He wept over right. Jerusalem. He entered, and that happens in chapter... Oh, that all happens in chapter 19. So we're in Holy Week. You get the plot immediately following our text. There you go. The betrayal by Judas, and then the Passover, institution of the supper, and so forth. All right. Okay. So that's it. It's, so it's sort of his last words before the last supper. So does this... We're close to it. Does, does this function as the... Farewell discourse functions in John, essentially, for his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny. So, right, he's preparing them for the end of time, but in preparing preparing them for the end of time, he's also preparing them for the crucifixion. So, again, there's that that close correspondence between the two events. And and they're really kind of, they're not really distinct events. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, yeah, maybe that's... Yeah, I, I think I'm going to stick with that statement. I don't, I don't think they're really distinct events. I think that the crucifixion of Jesus is the defining event that doesn't just inform and color the last day and, and the judge, judgment day and all of those things, but it really, in some sense, is, right? It is the judgment. I mean, there's so much correspondence there. Is that too much? Am I, am I going too far? Does that deny history if I say that they're not his distinct events? I guess from whose perspective? Are they a singular event <laughs> in God's perspective or how we actually experience it? Even, even as we experience it, I, I mean, because it's impossible for us to experience anything apart from the atonement, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there is no, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm over overthinking it or overstating it. Well, uh, there is a sense, isn't there, in the early Christians and that nascent church, they had an expectation of a quick return. Yeah. An imminent yeah. return. I mean, that's that's all of yeah, first and second Thessalonians. <laughs> you know, did we miss it? Well, like, <laughs> well, I mean, Jesus says right in this text, this generation won't pass away. Mm-hmm. I mean, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they think that mean that we're not going to die? Yeah, right. 
at least some of us will still be alive. I mean, that's a pretty reasonable way to read that. And I don't think they're wrong to read it that way, even though in a way they're wrong. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're, they're technically wrong because, right, none of them is still alive and Jesus hasn't returned in glory, but they actually, that is what he at some level meant and the way that they should actually proceed expecting him to come back. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should, maybe we should say that. Maybe we should say that from the pulpit this Sunday, this generation is by this, this congregation will by no means pass away before these things take place. <sighs> well, you're going to have to talk about <laughs> what generation is. then. <laughs> I know you yeah I mean of course but but really that is the sense that he that he he gives them mm-hmm. I think we've already talked about this on here before I think this generation means this kind of people that is worldly people there will always be people like this in the world that uh, will have their minds on earthly things and not heavenly things and we will never escape that on this side of glory. So these kinds of people will always be with you and will and uh, you know will not pass away before I come again. That's what I think it means at its most uh, I mean that's the literal meaning, I think. However, I think it also means that we're to expect Jesus to come back before we die. And I don't think they're wrong to think that way, except that if they get disappointed and then Paul has to tell them, you know, yeah, I, I mean, it's fun. That's inter- uh, so I wonder if we could. This is really going to go. This is probably going to annoy people, and maybe they're right to be annoyed. But I wonder if there's if we can make a proper distinction between what piety expects, as opposed to the exact dogmatic promise in Scripture. So, so piety expects Jesus to come back on every cloud. Right, every cloud is maybe the chariot he's riding in. Dogmatically, we have to have this sort of caveat that there's no, we don't know the time, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know when, and and then it could be another ten thousand years, right? We we just we, it hasn't been given to us to know the times uh, of these things, and yet you know, despite that sort of caveat, we're to actually expect it. Okay, so the. The heos on panta genetai, until all these things have happened. That's an aorist middle subjunctive. What, what's the best translation of that and understanding? Let me think about that. It, an er, so this is, a, this is an undefined time that has to do with completion, but it's a completed action, right? It's, that's the aspect of an aorist. Mm-hmm. Till all so, things, what, what what do we have here? Till, till all till things, all, till have, all things have happened. have taken place. Have taken place. Yeah, you, you need. We have to have the helping verb. I think we have to have a have. Oh, this. Let's see. Yes, or uh, what am I looking at? New King James says, "Till all things take place." What does the uh, ESV have? Have taken until place? all has taken place. Has taken place. What's the difference in English? Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. What's the difference between that in English and until all things has well, taken? So in, in the ESV, it sounds like, um, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Oh, I know. 
Yeah, that means like it could it it if you if you have it that way, that could mean that like it could all take place now, but we could still wait a thousand years. Yeah, it it, it doesn't that doesn't that doesn't imply an immediacy, right? right. It, it's it's all taken place, so we're we're waiting. And whereas uh, the way it's rendered in New King James, it seems like this will this will not happen till all things take place. Seems to imply that when these things have all taken place simultaneously, right? Immediately yeah. upon that, when the conditions are fulfilled, it will happen. Yeah, I yeah. think that's right in English. I think we've rightly understood that. Um, okay, but I guess the a, question yeah. is, uh, are the all things even the coming of the Son of Man or just the signs? Well, I thought the coming of the Son of Man is when, let's see. <laughs> so you also, when you see these things happening... I mean, he has in verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Yeah. When these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, right? Looking for the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Now in, in verse 32, he says, right, these things. I, I think- Are the, these things even the, the cloud, or are they just, when you see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars on earth, distress of nations and perplexity, we should always be looking to the clouds. Is, is that the teaching? I, I, like, yeah. These things have taken place. So since we see all of these things actually taking place, our posture should yeah. always be one of straightening up to raise up our heads to look to the clouds for the return of the Son of Man because our redemption is drawing near. That should be our expectation. Yeah, exactly. Right. Our expectation is this cloud is it. Yes. Every cloud. Every cloud. So, I mean, that's the thing. This is... Every cloud is it. So we we really are. That's what I mean. We really are expecting him right now. Right. And and yet there's that sort of caveat that well, I mean we are, but we're also preparing for tomorrow because we don't really know, and it could delay. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that we where our emphasis tends to be on the caveat, and and it tends to be on the caveat because of course that's our lifelong experience. He's mm-hmm. he hasn't come in glory. And I think that undermines the kind of urgency of this text and actually what faith, how faith should respond to this. I think yeah, faith okay. should be looking to every single cloud. That, that's why I was, that's, that was, took so a then long you get time that, to get there, but that's why I started. No, I, and I agree with you. And I think he, he tells us this then in verses 34 and following, because he's like, he's saying, all right, watch yourselves <laughs> yeah. then, right? So, Okay, you're going to notice these signs. You can't help but notice them, right? But don't be looking for yep. the signs. Watch yourselves so that you don't get pulled into that vortex of hopelessness so right. that you're not weighed down. And I think that those things are, are uh, alternative coping mechanisms right? Because of, the, because of the horror of what's going on and the sort of weariness of we've been waiting and waiting. And so, mm-hmm. right? carousing, yeah. drunkenness, cares of this life, that, that's living as though this life is all there is and there's plenty of time, you know, yeah. right? So so don't, if you, if you give into that, it's going to come upon you unexpectedly if you get caught in, and there's the threat here. If Jesus, if Jesus returns and you're intoxicated, you chose that night to drink too much. Yeah. You know, does, uh, do you go to heaven or hell? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a, that's a serious question. That we should not simply go, well, you know, big deal. Getting drunk's no big deal, right? Faith can exist in a drunk. I mean, yeah, 
can, but that's a presumption. Um, and, and we're explicitly warned against that, right? And I mean, you know, drunkenness is just one possibility, but there's all sorts of other ways, right? Mm-hmm. What, what might you be in the midst of doing, you know, slandering, gossiping, looking at pornography, intoxicated, right? Uh, uh, engaging in dark fantasies about the destruction of your enemies, uh, you know, on and on it goes. And that's, I mean, we ought to take that very seriously as a, as an admonition, you know, first use of the law in its purest mm-hmm. sense, uh, right, to not sin. Right. Yeah, to keep looking for our redemption. I, uh, yeah, to be afraid to sin because we don't want to get caught. Mm-hmm. All right. So c- keeping on this theme of like what we're seeing in the text itself and h- how to understand these things, I was surprised by, in verse 26, the word used for world. He, he doesn't use the word cosmos. He uses oikumene. Oh, yeah. Is there any significance to that, do you think? I mean, I didn't think of any, but off the top of my head, I didn't. I mean, do, I mean doesn't, doesn't oikomenoi mean more of uh, like the earth, as opposed to the whole universe, maybe, or I mean, right? It's our word for economy, also. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I yeah, don't know it, if it does have what the a, significance would be an Earth. I mean, the the actual Earth versus the, the planet, the entire universe. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, cosmos is is more sweeping. What what verse was it in? 20, verse twenty six. Verse twenty six. Oh, the things that are coming. Out. Oh, you know what? The the New King James translates at Earth. The things which are coming on the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think actually that does make more sense than coming on the cosmos. That this is a specific uh, a specific punishment and uh, that's being placed upon the earth upon met because of men, mm-hmm. even though the whole cosmos is failing. Yeah. The, right? the, the ESV, I mean, they're not, he's not showing signs. Yeah. The ESV. ESV has what? Has world. But they have in verse twenty-five, Earth for um, gase, taste gase. Oh yeah, well that's for the a, land. I mean, I think right? that's a that's a yeah. Earth for gase definitely makes sense. Um, I mean, world isn't isn't bad. I mean, you just wouldn't want it to be translated universe, which cosmos could be, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I mean, keeping that distinction between Gaia and. Uh, Oikomene makes sense to me, but I think the point of it would be is that these signs aren't happening on Mars. <laughs> I mean, not in the same way. Okay. You know, these are these are specific signs for men, and not even just signs for men. Actually, signs for Christians, mm. right? Because because as Lindemann pointed out, this has a very positive bent to it, and it's meant to be is intended as an encouragement. Uh, and it's twofold. The encouragement is, first of all, that we shouldn't be like like a, uh, Peter will say, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Like, oh my goodness, the world's the world's terrible. The, the world's really wicked. I don't know how that happened. No, I mean that's not a surprise, and that it's getting worse. We, we, we shouldn't be shocked by that. It's been foretold. Uh, but then also to see that actually the increase of this is a demonstration of the whole Romans one thing that they're being handed over to their depravity Mm. and God is actually, this is the beginning of his wrath. That's why it's so terrible 
But then, you know, on the other side of it is we should see this as actually our enemies being destroyed. And this is right, lift up. It's our redemption that's drawing near, mm-hmm. you know, the, but I mean, it's kind of tough when you're in the, uh, you know, you're in the German village being liberated and the Americans are lobbing artillery, you know, the occupied village. They're, they're trying to, right. They're trying to maybe kill the Germans, but, uh, you know, if you're living there, it's horrific. Right. Right. Yes. You know, and, yes. I mean, the, the artillery feels a little bit indiscriminate. Um, and yet, so, I mean, you know, you're, you, you love it because it's driving out the oppressors, the occupiers. And yet at the same time, it's yeah. Hey, that's that. I just came to me. That was a pretty good illustration. I think. What about Saluthesuntai? Will be shaken. This uh, is this comes up in. This is divine he, artillery. <laughs> <laughs> shaken. It's funny they didn't use size. So this is the this is a different word than usually we use for shake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one used which, in Hebrews twelve. This is a 12. water word. Oh, is it? Yeah, Hebrews twelve. It's a water 27. word, right? The things that can't be shaken will remain. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it's related to the waves, the word for the waves. Waves, salos. right. Right. So it has to do with surging, right, and being. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's also, I think, um, so it, it, maybe this is really being, but but so it's the seisma word, the shake, Jerusalem is shaken, mm-hmm. right? That's um, like the earth itself, but, but that is like, their emotions are shaken. This is this is actually a physical violence, like a tidal wave. You know, mm-hmm. push. I mean, there's like no escaping it. I don't mm-hmm. know. You could sort of. You. I feel. May I don't live in California, so maybe I wouldn't say this, but I feel like I could kind of uh, stand during a, an earthquake, and you know, things shake and stuff falls off the walls, and it's a little bit scary and surprising. I've only been in one earthquake. But, but uh, you know, when a typhoon comes, I mean, that the whole landscape has changed. Mm. And I think this is, a, this, is an, this is a wave crashing upon that, you know, n- nobody comes unscathed from this, right? I mean, all the houses are flooded. It isn't just, or, you know, think of a, you know, the hurricane comes and some houses are left intact, but some are, you know, just the path of the hurricane matters or of, tr- of a tornado, this is there's no path i mean this is the whole wall of of water Mm -hmm. that just shakes the whole thing right so in matthew's gospel when jesus is teaching about all of the end time stuff he uses as it was in the days of noah so it will be at the coming of the son Ah. of man is this luke's tie-in to to noah and the flood I I never thought of that, but I think that's beautiful. I think absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, the flood the flood's very much a a type of this, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, also you could go back to the um, you know Genesis one with the whole chaos thing. Mm-hmm. I always like to point out that the you know the the Jews were not a sea going people, and mm-hmm. um, you know when you're not a sea going people, the sea is very scary. Um, and you know what? It's it's mysterious. It's destructive. And of course, it was much more destructive in the ancient world because they didn't have the sort of the same level of sophistication in predicting the weather. You know, they didn't they didn't sail straight across the Mediterranean Sea. They mm-hmm. they, they sailed only during daylight hours, and they stayed close to shore. 
right. because they don't know, they never know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, th- there, whereas now, you know, it's, so it was a much more tre- treacherous kind of reality. Mm-hmm. And there was also, you know, especially again, like if, you know, you don't have the internet and, and, and the like, and I can't, you know, a, a whale washes up on shore and you see that thing. I mean, that, that's a monster, Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and you've got also all sorts of, you know, even besides the, you know, the, the large size of sea creatures and giant things and, you know, things like sharks, which they definitely knew about. But, you know, there's just all sorts of bizarro, weird alien looking creatures. I mean, lobsters are just the tip of the barrel, right? <laughs> that these, you know, these are giant bugs that live under the water. But then you've yeah. got, you know, just imagine when they see one of these lantern fish or one of those weird things with all the teeth. And so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not mocking them for that. I mean, I think that it's, it's legitimate. And I think, you know, there's more probably in the ocean than we know also. Mm -hmm. Um, But God uses that to, to draw this picture of not their, their smallness and their vulnerability. Right. So the chaos at the beginning got, and that's a great thing also in the, you know, in the revelation of John, the glassy sea. Mm -hmm. Why is the sea like glass? Well, it's not violent anymore and you can walk across it. I I actually think that that means when Jesus walks on water, I think we're all going to walk on water. (laughs) That, that I I do. I totally believe this, right? (laughs) Because of the glassy sea. And that actually, there's, we're going to come to a point where water is not a threat. Where you're, I mean, there's not going to be any more drowning. Right now, baptism is both and, but you know, it's going to come to the point where there's no, there's no threat, and the sea is a great threat. So the the glassy sea is peaceful and supports mm-hmm. us. Right, we float across across it if we want to. Isn't that is, a great image? There, actually, yeah, there is. Is there? So uh, I mean, along some of those lines. You know, we were talking about how the things will be shaken that can be to reveal what remains, what can't be shaken. Is there a sense also in in what you find in, say, like Second Corinthians four sixteen to eighteen? Uh, you know, we don't lose heart, even though our outer self is wasting away; our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That being shaken in this way, that resistance, you've talked about this, there's no growth without resistance, no growth in strength or dexterity without kind of this resistance that he's preparing us or giving us a frame to stand up under this eternal weight of glory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a great, that's a great passage to bring to bear. I mean, you know, you could also I mean, it's the other end of the spectrum, but it's the kind of another version of uh, refining by fire, mm-hmm. right? Refining by re- refining by erosion in this case, right? Letting these these floods wash away that which is weak, or you know, and I mean, I think that fits with the statement in verse thirty three that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Mm-hmm. That's what can't be shaken, right? That's what can't be shaken, right? And that's what our trust is and our hope is. And yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's also the, uh, I love the, uh, oh, I can't, I can't believe I forgot the reference, right? But the, uh, the, Lord, the Lord does not delight in the, in the legs of a horse or in what, how, and the legs of a man, you know? Isn't it Psalm um, 147 
or no, that's... Yeah, that's it. I don't know, whatever it is, it's in the Bible somewhere. But I always think about that in, in how much we do rejoice in the legs of a man, um, right? I mean, that's our whole fascination with sports. Mm. Uh, you know, that's what we're, you know, part of it is a fantasy, right? We're imagining ourselves doing those things. But but part of it is just a, a glorification of the physicality of men. Like, I just am fascinated by David Goggins. He's just total, he's just amazing to me. And he's got, if anybody's ever, he's got all sorts of problems that are quite obvious and quite on the surface. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd, he'd acknowledge some of those, um, maybe most of them, maybe, maybe all of them. But he's just, you know, the I mean, he's just incredible to show us what humans can do, yeah. you know, and, you know, we're not, I'm not doing that. I'm not even tempted to try it, uh, but uh, I do have an elder in my congregation that's trying it. It's astounding. Mm-hmm. His wife's mad at me because I introduced him to David Goggins stuff and he tried to run a 100 mile race this fall. He, I, I, incredible. He made it 57 miles and he twisted his ankle. Unfortunately, the weather was horrible. Uh, but he's, he's training already for the next one. He's a totally ordinary guy. Yeah. And, well, I mean, not completely, obviously in some ways he's not ordinary because he's got this, but anyway, he was inspired by David Goggins that, you know, this, the, but anyway, all that being said, there is that impressed right by the legs of a man. Look at what Kobe Bryant can do. Look at what these NFL guys can do. Look what this elder of mine can do and to be amazed and to recognize that they are in some ways representing us. This is what human beings are capable of because it's the mind that gives up before the body does. Correct. But at the same time, but at the same time, right? I mean, it is severely limited. So it's pretty impressive if David Goggins runs, you know, 127 miles through death Valley and, you know, 18 and a half hours. Um, but at the same time, right, he almost dies at the end, and without modern medical intervention, he probably would have. So it, it, it is passing <laughs> away. And, and Goggins himself, you know, is aging, um, you know, no matter how fit he is and how many vitamins he takes and how disciplined he is. I mean, David Goggins is dying. His right. days are limited, right? And in fact, his performance has already was already peaked at this point, you know, mm-hmm. he's still, I mean, I'm taking nothing away from the guy. I mean, he's astounding in what he's doing in his forties. Uh, you know, he's, he's tough as, uh, as nails, but you know, his body's not what it was. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, that, it's a, uh, it's just, it, it just has to do with seeing the weakness, the mortality, right? David Goggins, no matter how far he can run, can't stand in front of a tidal wave, right? right. We just had, we just had, I, I just saw it in the news to, uh, uh, yesterday, five uh, special operations guys, presumably Green Berets, died in, in the Mediterranean Sea this weekend uh, because of a, a, a accident, helicopter refueling accident. I mean, it doesn't matter how strong you are and how smart you are and how well-trained you are. Right. Yeah. When the helicopter blows up over the Mediterranean Sea, you know, um, yeah. it's heartbreaking, but it's it's a call to recognize that we can't overcome these things by our own powers. So we better mm-hmm. be ready for Judgment Day. Yeah. Yeah. We can't just delight in the legs of the man. 
No, there, there is a, I mean, there is something delightful in Kobe Bryant. Or, I mean, Michael Jordan for me, that's the all time, yeah. but yes, <laughs> but uh, whoever it is, right. I mean, there is a, there is a proper delighting in it, but it has to take a back seat and it has to be put in context and God doesn't delight in them. Right. Horses too, you know, they're pretty impressive. Uh, but again, severely limited. All right, back to the text. You know, we didn't talk about the structure of the text, which is, you know, I think often, almost always, very useful for preaching. This is really a three-part. The part of the eschatological discourse we get, I think we could easily divide into three parts. So 25 to, I think, like 28 is signs, right? So we have signs in nature, signs in the nations, that, that is wars and distress, and then also signs in men's hearts, um, and then we have the sight of the Son of Man in a cloud with glory, right? And that's to be seen not just by the Christians, but the Christians are to see the signs that precede that sight. And then the response, of course, look up, rejoice, lift up your heads, right? Um, redemption draws near. So that's part one. Then part two is this fig tree that buds in the spring. I think that's really always kind of got me too. It seems like it seems like this shouldn't be a springtime tree, but a fall tree that's dying, but it mm. isn't, right? So it, it feels like fall in a way, like it feels like the end of all things, but this tree is, the fig tree's budding, it's about to give fruit, right? We know that summer is coming and following summer comes the harvest. So there's a kind of positivity with the fig tree here. And then uh, this generation won't pass away, but heaven and earth were, will, but my words won't. And then part part three, uh, which we really kind of spent quite a bit of time on already, is that sort of take heed, don't be surprised, watch and pray. Pray for two things, that you might escape um, some of this, and two, that you would stand before the Son of Man. Uh, that is, that you would be justified, that you would cling to the thing which doesn't pass away. So, I don't know, you could... You could preach on one part, or you could potentially take those three parts and kind of make it the outline of a sermon. You got some possibilities there. That's good. That's good. Hey, what so, do you think of? I every time I come to this, I gotta. I don't have an. I'm, this is a question. I, it's. I hear that there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and I want to go to the fourth day of creation, but I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Because that's the day of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Mm-hmm. We could go to. I mean, what he is says, it? "Is it Psalm nineteen? Day by oh, day, day by day, the sun and the moon and star pour forth speech. They declare the the glories of God. Isn't it Psalm nineteen? Uh, well, I'm reading. It's got the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. That's day two. Well, I mean, yeah. the firmament though is is. Uh, well, the firmament's filled with birds. Day into day utters speech, night into night. That's sun and moon, I guess. There's no speech. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their words, to, oh, we hear that all the time in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And their words to the end of the world, that's used all the time as an, um, the gradual or the alleluia verse for saints' day, for apostles' days and evangelist days. Mm-hmm. It's like a bridegroom coming I mean, you out. Do- Doesn't he say that in Psalm 19? Um, in them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber. Yeah, so there yeah. you have sunrise, rejoices like a strong man to run its race, rising from one circuit to the other. 
And then the law of the Lord is perfect. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you do have in in the Genesis account that the sun, the moon, and the stars are given as signs for men for seasons, right? Yeah. And for navigation. And then here you have they're going to be signs. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, you the get last it, season. Then in the at the end, you get who can discern his errors. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion right, over Psalm me. 19. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Ah, there you go. Your redemption oh, yeah. draws near. Yeah. I mean, okay. that would be great. Yeah, that that's a good. great sermon. Yeah, I think that's great. And you could still tie it a little, you could still tie it to the fourth day a little bit, but... It doesn't seem like it has. I wanted it to have, I've always wanted it to have some correspondence to the other days. But yeah, that's really good. Psalm 19. I like that. Well, you could do that. You could do that just, maybe you could make a comparison like, because it says that, doesn't it say that the sun rules over the day and the moon and the stars rule over the night? So maybe you could make a connection about ruling. Yeah. About dominion, about who's really yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. So maybe you could maybe you can go that route. Yeah, because that's the I think there's day. a correspondence, right? They serve the right, and it's it is the same. Uh, it's the same word that is given to um, man to have dominion over all of creation. Okay, if I remember correctly. <laughs> well, yeah, it's the end of. It's it's the end of days, right? Again, in the revelation to John, the the gates are the gates are always open because it's always day. Uh, we got the Romans fifteen. We talked about the Malachi passage. The Romans fifteen is nice too, uh, with correspondence to the gospel because you have that the word that endures forever, and then Romans fifteen is about scripture. Whatever was written was written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. Mm-hmm. And then, and then about uh, including the gen, you might also have kind of a connection to the Malachi with the Gentiles being included in the church. Jesus confirms the promises made to the fathers and showing mercy to the Gentiles, and the church is urged to receive the Gentiles as true brothers, uh, a single family, so that. Turning the hearts of the fathers to the children has a kind of correspondence there. And then, of course, the correspondence with the, the words that don't pass away, the words that are written, uh, and for the sake that we would have actually hope, right? The patience and comfort of Scripture that we might have hope. And that's, the, that's oh, one yeah. of the Bible passages for the fivefold use. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Speaking of fivefold use... I didn't. I started. What I did there. I didn't want to different. I did. That was great. We're so we're so professional. Before that, I have a I have another one. Instead of five, I did a little bit of fivefold use, but uh, I also thought to just jump right at allegories. You got some allegorical possibilities in this that could be a kind of um, I don't know, like ruling metaphor. For, for a sermon or a way to uh, kind of bring a lot of scripture in. The cloud thing, of course. I mean, there's so much cloud stuff. You know, the cloud, the cloud, uh, you know, on the tabernacle and then when, when it's finally built in Exodus 40, but the cloud that leads them by day, the cloud that comes upon Moses at the giving of the law, the cloud at transfiguration, 
Um, so, I mean, all that cloud stuff and at the Ascension. So there really is something, there's a lot of scriptural stuff. And then I think, you know, just what we were talking about to kind of, it's such a great hook for, to try to, to help people remember in their everyday lives that Jesus is coming to, to kind of re-see clouds mm-hmm. as a real sign. In Indiana, it's cloudy almost every day where we live. So yeah. well, hey, so the cloud I, thing could be... Going back to Go your ahead. whole fourth day sun, moon, and stars thing, maybe this is, this is the sign of their dominion passing away and the light of the Son of Man oh. is coming and the clouds that don't let us see those things. That cover I like those it. Things. Oh, and Malachi calls him, and Mal, this is where Malachi calls him the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness mm-hmm. with right. healing on his wings. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, the cloud is, um, the cloud is, yeah, I like that. That's, uh, there's a sort of, I was uh, uh, <laughs> one of these, one of these times in my life where I th- was being an idiot and God was merciful. I was, <laughs> I'll tell I'll make this quick. So I, I was on a mountain in Korea and, uh, I was mad and the guys that were with me were mad because it was cloudy and it was foggy and the weather wasn't nice and it was kind of crowded. And, you know, so it was just kind of disappointing. We climb, we walk up this mountain. It was a pretty easy walk. We get up to the top of this mountain and it's just, you can't see anything. It's just a drizzle. And then while we're standing there within a couple of minutes, all of a sudden it stops and the sun starts to come out and the clouds start to go away and they're just swirling all around us and rays of light are coming in, you know, and it's mm-hmm. just, I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. It was so beautiful. And then in about, you know, pretty quickly, probably less than 10 minutes, all that swirling was over and it was a bright blue sky and you could see for six miles and, you know, the whole thing. And we were, we just stood there in awe because we were all so unappreciative and grouchy. And then we actually got this like most spectacular thing. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just like one of those things where like, I'm such an idiot for being so, un- you know, for being annoyed because things weren't perfect. And I didn't even know what perfect was. This was way better than I could have expected. Right. And mm-hmm. then one of the Koreans says, it was a great line. It's sort of slightly risque. He says, uh, this is, this is like a beautiful woman with her lingerie <laughs> <laughs> reveal, revealing and hiding. And it's more, and it's more, uh, enticing than if she was just naked, you know? And yeah. I think, I mean, I know that is kind of risque, but it's also though very true. And it uh, so anyway, that clouds uh, revealing and uh, revealing and hiding and highlighting, right? Because you get mm-hmm. then like a shaft of light. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's good. I don't know if I can use the lingerie thing, but it wouldn't be the first time, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So the clouds. Yeah, that's great. The sun of righteousness. Yeah. Um, you could also do allegory stuff for sure with the sun stuff, sun, moon, stars. We already talked about that to some degree. The fourth day, you brought up Psalm 19, which I wasn't even thinking of. Number three for allegories, you could go, I mean, this this is an allegory Jesus gives, right? The whole signs of the time and particularly under this fig tree example. And what are the signs of the time, right? Apostasy, right? Uh, there's... There's no new age of enlightenment and peace, right? The sort of, you know, dream of Woodrow Wilson and, you know, I mean, or even the idea that, you know, maybe now World War II and atomic bombs are, have, have made it so that war is no longer possible, right? That's all 
gone, long gone. I mean, we just mm-hmm. were in constant war. The distress of Ben's hearts, particularly, we could think of the sort of mental health crises that we're in the midst of and have been loneliness, depression, anxiety, addictions, obesity, right? I mean, it's, it's shameful uh, when you look at how weak we are in these ways compared to our forefathers. And I think we should, we, we should recognize this as actually a sign of the time that this is prophesied in scripture. And of course, these things are going to get worse. And of course, we're going to be weaker than our fathers because we're being, you know, we're in a worse world and, th- mm-hmm. and we're being corrupted ourselves. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, the destruction of the families is also a sign, uh, you know, baby daddies, right? Uh, this is the opposite of, and I mean, this is what Elijah, John the Baptist undoes, baby daddies, by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers Right? Why would you have to even do that? Well, because, because the, the actual good, godly order that was instituted in the beginning has been so perverted and destroyed that we have, we have biological fathers who aren't acting as fathers to their children. Their hearts aren't turned towards them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the sort of man-child syndrome of these guys living in their mother's basements playing video games rather than acting as men carousing drunkenness cares of this life and and, but I would and, and so this, I, also I think, the pr- promiscuity of women that has gotten okay. worse as well oh I mean, yeah that's true we, yeah. we cannot we can't just lay this all at, i mean there's a responsibility that men have but so do women oh yeah for sure well, all of that I'm saying, what I, I think what I'm suggesting here with this sort of sermon idea or outline would be to actually, like the evangelicals and the charismatics, actually see in the events of our modern world the fulfillment of these signs and to call mm-hmm. attention to them as that. Okay, uh, you know, and I mean, this one's a little bit dicey because they overdo this, but, you know, Israel being at war with Hamas is a sign of the end. Now, not really in a way that's any more powerful than Russia being at war with the Ukraine, but, right. but but to recognize it is this is this is all these wars are part of this fulfillment, and and to name these things and, and to say so in some sense when you feel like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, that's at least partially correct in that things are escalating, or you know the deterioration mm-hmm. is is increasing, it's becoming more rapid yeah. and more disgusting. And yet, then to turn that, as Jesus does, and to say all of that, and you know what you should do? You should lift up your heads, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And rejoice, because in fact, right, your enemies are being destroyed, and, mm-hmm. and God is coming, and, and this, is, this is actually the beginning of the vindication of faith and of mm-hmm. believers. So, I mean, in my lifetime, we've always been either in some kind of conflict, cold or hot with somebody. That is the United oh, States. Yeah. Whether it was Russia, you know, before the fall of the Iron Curtain in 89 and the destruction destruction uh, of the Berlin Wall, I guess the Berlin Wall in 89, Iron Curtain in like 90 or 91. Um, and then uh, all of the Middle East stuff. And then now Ukraine, right. China, and the possible more Middle East stuff. So you, you could tie that all together. Like, can you remember a time when we weren't sending soldiers overseas? Right. Were they, right. No, I mean, and I think I, we have not, in my experience, 
I don't think we've done a lot of that. We, we've shied away from that stuff because of the weird charismatic stuff where, you know, they take the book of Revelation and, well, obviously the bear is Russia and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, is there a bear in Revelation? Uh, whatever they whatever they do. Anyway, the, <laughs> the way that, right. So, okay, that's that's all my allegory. But I thought instead of just limiting ourselves to the five-fold use here, we could maybe, instead of making that the... Uh, mm-hmm. The new law gospel. Uh, yeah, I mean, this cutter. would be a good time to review Peeper on the last things. Stevenson on eschatology. Yeah. You could easily. This is, as you said, the evangelicals, uh, the dispensationalists. They're going crazy again for like left behind Hal Lindsey nonsense. This would be a perfect opportunity to kind of go through what we believe in terms of the last things. Uh, yeah. So that could be that a would be a full use correction, right? Mm-hmm. To uh right to respond to errors in the I also had in terms of doctrine, I do have I do still have fivefold use stuff. The uh I, I think to teach the particular eagerness that we should have for the eschaton, because this text, you know, not every eschatological text is the same. Mm-hmm. They they do have distinct nuances and, and emphasis that ought to drive our preaching rather than I mean, not that you couldn't just preach kind of generically, you know, dogmatically from a systematic point of view, you know, on the eschaton. But, uh, you know, this is particularly about the encouragement to mm-hmm. to look up. So, you know, and then how is that? I think the, the trick to that is to really talk, to nuance this eagerness for the end, this joyful expectation with the inherent sadness at the suffering of the world. And then to see this eagerness and this joyful expectation is also uh, a drive for evangelism, right? The kind of urgency to get this message out. So mm-hmm. rather than just being, you know, here's stuff about the last days. Right. right. Yeah. Try to make it both, both uh, dogmatic and also textual. Imagine mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's not the... It's not the excuse for doing nothing. It's the it's the reason for doing something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We actually have we actually have a way to relieve these people, maybe not immediately, but in what really matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scripture is a big doctrine this week. I'd say. I mean, when Jesus says, "Right, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not," and then we have the Romans text. I have four doctrinal things under Scripture. So, uh, from the epistle. You could preach on the purpose of the history of Israel, right? That these things are written as an example for us. And there's, you know, that that would be both teaching how to read the Old Testament appropriately uh, as our own history uh, and, uh, and also then uh, demonstrating and showing what the purpose of Scripture is, right, in to make us wise unto salvation and uh, all the other things. Mm-hmm. So, it might be a place to actually explicitly talk about the fivefold use, right? Oh, yeah. uh, also, then, uh, just the the endurance of the word, right? The fact that the word is, you know, the sole source and norm of all of our doctrine and life. Uh, you know, the one thing that actually is trustworthy and that that, that does not go away. And the, of course, you'd you'd want to make that, I think, christological. Also, uh, I think it's appropriate to tie in John one here. Right to see to in that way, 
Uh, also, the perspicuity and uh, trust. I mean, some of these are overlapping, but you know, a- again, the idea in Romans is that we're actually going to be able to understand the Bible mm-hmm. so that it would be a comfort to us and it would give us hope, right? And we're, there is this expectation and assumption that we're reading the Old Testament and that they make these things make sense to us. So it could be a little bit of a correction there too, or even a you know that you're encouraging actually learning these stories and, and recognizing them. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, the the use of scripture for calming uh, or, or for comforting us in times of persecution or of fear. And you know this is what right this is the word that Paul uses is this comfort and hope and. I think here to tie it into the the gospel is we have this expectation that we're going to face persecution. And so we really need to learn scripture by heart and uh, all yeah. that stuff. Right. I've, I've told this story a million times, but my confirmation pastor always said that the reason whenever we complained and said, why do we have to memorize all these Bible passages? He always said, because you never know when the communists are going to take you prisoner. And uh, he was a World War, a Korean War vet. True story. I love that answer. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like, hey, you might be a POW. And uh, if you're a POW, the only Bible you have is the one you've memorized. And also, that's not only your Bible, but it's also going to end up being the Bible for your cellmates. So you can actually comfort them. And I mean, that's a, I mean, you know, I thought that was sort of silly, though I loved him. I loved him. But, uh, I thought that was sort of silly when I was, you know, seventh and an eighth grader, but boy, I don't think it's silly anymore. Um, all right. I got training in righteousness. So, right. How do we in, uh, hold up in hope in the midst of suffering? Um, that uh, we could talk about the kind of patience and confidence in waiting and in reading scripture and a call to optimism, trust, and to joy. So, I mean, we've already talked about that somewhat, but you could do this explicitly, I mean, or, you know, in your own mind as you're writing as, as this kind of training in righteousness, the way that um, Gerhardt talks about it is, right, that, that we suffer believing that God is good and that he's working through these things. And, and here, I mean, this is, this is what Jesus says. That's the purpose of these signs so that we wouldn't be terrified by them. Oh, I had another doctrinal one. Um, and, you know, there's this, I, I love this, this drawing near language, which, did we have that last week too? I had it in something else. This, you know, this, uh, the nearness of God in word and sacrament, right? So mm-hmm. it's your redemption that draws near, right? And the end is drawing near. Both of those things mean that it's not yet here, right? It's not all the way here. It's almost here. Well, you know, that he is near in, in word and sacrament, but he's not yet present the way he will be in his glory when the kingdom of power is finally revealed, right? And, and we are vindicated. And so where does God draw near now, right? Our redemption is drawing near right now in word and sacrament. And that then is the way that we wait, right? Yeah. That's where we live. There is a... Go ahead. There is a, I guess a, maybe it's a, a stream of thought. I, maybe this is particular to Lutherans, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm open to correction on that. Which is to say that you know we put so much emphasis on a word and sacrament and how his presence is 
uh, here with us even now, here in time, that uh, that we end up thinking like we've got all that we need, or that we right. don't we don't need more, or that we're not looking forward right. to more. Um, and so it's kind of a lack of that. Uh, uh, it's a lack of hope in the sense that we don't have an expectation of receiving more. It's like we've got it all. And so, you know, why do I need the Lord's Supper every Sunday when I got baptized? Why do I need to go to confession uh, when, you know, I can confess my sins every Sunday in the common confession? Why do I need all these things? And we, we just kind of view it as like pitting things against and not seeing them as a whole, like unfolding to more, that we can desire more and he has more to give and... What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think we do the same thing with the intermediate state of the souls. We talk about it's that it's so great that we we don't know why the martyrs are saying how long, O oh Lord. Well, it's not complete yet. They don't have their bodies and they don't have us, right? And and we're in a similar state here. You, I I think that so in Exodus forty, the cloud comes upon the tabernacle, and then when it does, they can't move. They have to wait there. And it's visible to the says it's visible to the whole nation, so they look and they know right where God is present for them, right? Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, it's a delay, they're, and they're, they're, that's not their goal to stay there in the desert in the presence of God. Their goal is to be in the promised land in the presence of God. And when so when they're getting that, it means they're not moving, they're not making progress. Mm-hmm. And I liken that to the chalice on the altar. So when you walk into church and you see the chalice on the altar, oh, it's a communion service. God is here for us. But that means it's not over yet. That means the good work hasn't yet been completed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're being given food for the journey. We're not, we're not at the final feast where we're headed. Yeah. And I think that's a, a, a kind of related reality, right? How, and I, I think you're, it's, um, you know, we, I think sometimes actually we're kind of pandering when we talk about, you know, we have everything we need right now here in the sacrament, um, right? Because we're, and we're, so it's a little bit, yeah, I think it's a little bit pandering. We're not confessing the fullness of the reality and the kind of chaf- chafing and discomfort that we have in this world because it's not all it should be. And we're sort of yelling at the people because, well, if they had enough faith, then they wouldn't feel that way. Well, uh, yes, they would, Right. They yeah. would feel that way because they don't belong here. Our citizenship's in heaven. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think you're right. We, we, we might sometimes overemphasize that in such a way that it's potentially misleading. Yeah. The, um, that's your clouds coming up again. Yeah, I know. I, it's a lot of clouds. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I, I, I'd love to see you develop that. I don't know if I could do it. Uh, but if you do, I want to see it posted again on the blog. <laughs> All right, I'll think well, about it. It's a recording of it so that Actually, we can hear it. I have, I, I mean, an, I, I should be in uh, full disclosure here. I, I do have that about half done because we've been working through Exodus. So I did do something for the kids on clouds. So maybe I'll grab that and see if I can make it into, bring it into this. Mm-hmm. I got be, another one, cool. one yeah. more. So you could also go, I don't know what, where this fits in the five-fold use, but uh, the, you could do something with, G, with John the Baptist being Elijah and turning the 
hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, the problem is we've got two more Sundays of John the Baptist, but uh, I think you could tie John into the fig tree. Um, so some of that, I, I think it, what, what you could do and could be very useful is you could preach on Elijah as the type of John the Baptist, and you could bring in the details of his life and his ministry and his struggles, right? Um, and then and then also then what the title Elijah means and then why John resists it. Because in two weeks, we're going to hear John say he's not Elijah, even though Jesus calls him Elijah. So that's something could be done. Uh, also, you could bring in the idea that John is, of course, still preparing the way for the Lord through Holy Scripture, because his words are recorded for us. And then how the signs that we're seeing all around us uh, are confirming the word and are directing our attention towards the end, which again was the mission of of, of John. So, mm-hmm. the I don't know. The problem with that is, as I said, we've got two more Sundays of John the Baptist. So, yeah, I would. I, might I, run I, out I, I would. I would probably want to. <laughs> you want to wait? Yeah, not go down that route. Just me, because I know I'd be like, oh, I've, now I've got another one and another one. You'd need to map it out. I think it could mm-hmm. be very worthwhile because as long as you were kind of disciplined so that you knew what you were going to say, you know, I mean, at least thematically or in general, on the other two Sundays, you know, you could you, you could focus here on John as Elijah, you know, then the next week you've got, you know, John, whatever's going on there where he sends the disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? You know, so that whole coming one thing, which is very Advent, obviously, and then the last one, you know, his confession that he's not the Christ. So I, I think it could be done, but it would require some careful planning and discipline mm-hmm. so that you didn't end up, you know, just saying everything you know about John in the first week and then mm-hmm. just repeat yourself. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts? Anything that you are really hoping to focus on? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's such a, it's such a rich text, really. And they and the Old Testament and the Epistle fit so nicely in my mind. More so, and that collect. I mean, it's just a beautiful Sunday. It's it's hard to. It's one of those Sundays that it's difficult to narrow down. But but of course mm-hmm. we have to. Yeah. Are there are there any specific ceremonies that come out on this Sunday? Mm. Nothing that pops out of my head. No. Anything in particular? No, we already started everything the week before. Mm-hmm. I mean. And the only thing really on Gaudet is just the color, right? Otherwise, there's no variation in the... It's not like Lent where we have a gradation of ceremonies. Right. Yeah, I... I it's not I, that I interesting. Know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not that interesting. <laughs> it's not as interesting as Lent in that way. Yeah. Although this was called... Uh, wasn't it that this called St. Martin's Lent? It used to be six weeks long, Advent. Yeah, I just... That's funny. Uh, Boyle was just telling me about that. I don't know. I've I've seen that, but I never knew quite what it meant. But I still don't. Except that he said that the fast started then on November eleventh. Yes. Correct. You would start fasting. Yeah. And um, well, you'd not. So start we're, we're fasting throughout the entire year. You'd still fast on Wednesday and Friday. Well, that that's right. That's right. But I mean that the, the intensity of the fast would increase. Mm-hmm. On on uh, November eleventh, the problem for us is Thanksgiving. I think um, you know. I guess we could get dispensation from the Pope, maybe. But 
I think it does kind of work out nicely for us to make Thanksgiving the kind of last feast until Christmas and then to have a fasting period in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is one of the things that we, that's important when we talk about fasting, mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the counterpart to fasting is feasting. Yeah. And that largely our problem is we don't really know how to feast because that's all we do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, so there is this, you know, correct way to sort of receive these gifts in a, in an abundance with gratitude and to use them rightly as a feast, but that only can really exist if, if there's fasting. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, I, I like the idea. I mean, I know it's not like a liturgical idea and it wasn't, you know, it doesn't go back to ancient, the ancient church, but in our context, Thanksgiving's a nice end, right, of of that season mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, helps us move to Advent, I think. Yeah. So I don't want to start on November 11th. That's, that mm-hmm. was the whole speech was to say, I don't want to start on November 11th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I don't, cause I don't want it to start before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So uh, one last question. Um, it just came to my mind. I was reading something by Peter Lightheart and he was talking about preaching and uh, he mentioned like you, you don't, you, the best way to get to someone's will is not by command, but by, but, but by means of the imagination. So how do we do that more in our preaching in terms of engaging our people's imagination versus trying to just speak directly to their will with commands, do this, don't do that? Hmm. Well, I mean, that allegory stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, that helps them really think about the scriptures more deeply and envision things because it is often picture language. So, I mean, you know, exciting them through that sort of thing. Po- poetry also, right? Mm-hmm. Using, and I don't, I don't mean poetry literally here, but using poetic devices in yeah. our preaching, you know, so it's more beautiful, more explicit, more, the words are chosen more carefully. Those mm-hmm. things sort of help. Uh, you know, also then the narratives, right? Narratives are engage the imagination in a way that doctrine doesn't. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? So that's where, I mean, here, even though it's, it's not a story narrative, I mean, you do have Jesus describing things at the end. So, so that is, is useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, the, the whole story thing, how do you use stories appropriately? Because they're yeah. so, they so easily become a distraction and, and, and actually don't serve the point that we're trying to make. They just become their own ends. Yeah. And yet, you know, if, 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 if the right story is used in the right way, it, I, think, I think the key to stories in preaching um, I mean, I'm, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to say oh, you can only use Bible stories. I think that's 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 going too far. I mean, it's I, it's great if you can use Bible stories. I'm with Gerhard on that, but I'm not. I wouldn't say that there's no place for other stories. I think the thing is, the stories have to be limited to three, maybe four sentences. the The problem is, a lot of the problem with the stories is the story takes over. It takes too long to tell, and it becomes too detailed and too elaborate. And then it isn't really, it's not really an illustration at that point. It's its, it's its own thing. It's its own thing, yeah. 
And you can invoke a story without telling the whole, without, you know, making it into a whole drama. Right. I, I always, uh, I remember Art Just, when I was a student in class one time, he said, he was totally against it in those days, still is, I imagine, the whole elaborate story thing, which Don Defner was my prof, and he loved those. And But um, he said, in a, a sermon illustration is, Jesus is like a duck. And, you know, he's like a duck in these ways. And then, uh, the, but the way these guys do it is two ducks were walking down the street. One duck had red hair, the other yellow. And the one duck looked at the other one quizzically and said, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And uh, I thought that was, you know, that, that, that's right. I mean, there's, he was on to something with that criticism. Yeah. And the problem is the story, yeah. It, so, yeah, I think we got we to gotta tell stories fast if we're going to tell them. Yeah, I don't mean speed. I mean, you know, a concision of words so that they don't take over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you don't have to tell the whole story. You can you can say, um, I'm trying to think of an example. I always use this example. Uh, one of my favorite Bible passages is the law cometh from transgressions. So I say, well, in my house, we have a, we have a rule that you're not allowed to stand on your chair and pound your chest during dinner. The law cometh from transgressions. Now, I don't have to tell you why that's, right? You're, you're going to be like, oh, I, I, I can imagine we had a lunatic kid that, you know, made this big whatever. And so I don't have to tell you all this stuff. You, you got the idea of it and you, and you recognize that, right? Well, I had to make up a rule because of the unreasonableness of these children. Mm-hmm. And, right? So I yes. think a lot of times yeah. we can really reduce, reduce this thing to, you don't have to tell the whole story. You can just kind of tell the end of it, and we can fill in the blanks. I was just listening to Nate Bargatze. I just he's he's fantastic, you know, and he's really popular now. The stand-up oh, comedian. Lord, I just went to see him. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. he's clean. I mean, it's wonderful. He's, it was great. It's really funny. He's wholesome. So he has this. I I was uh, listening to one of his specials last night, and where he ta- tells this, he, he's telling the story about. Uh, Oh, I can't even remember now. What was the, what was the thing that he was saying? His wife. Oh, he his wife was complaining because he has too much fun with his friends, laughing. He, she doesn't laugh like that with her. He says, "Well, yeah, my friends are professional comedians, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so when we hang out, it's pretty, it's it's pretty funny." He says, "You know, they, they make jokes all the time." He says, "She doesn't really make jokes. She makes a lot of lists." You know, and I just love that line. She makes a lot of lists, and you know, I mean, that's like he didn't have to tell you anything else, right? That was like a, just a total, you know, kind of perfect moment there about kind of you know the whole male female dynamic, husband wife thing. Why his friends are fun, why she isn't, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's all he had to say. She, she makes a lot of lists. Yeah. You know, and it was just, it was, you know, of course, I mean, stand up comedians are the best at this because they really have an economy of language. But so that kind of thing, I think, can be done probably better by us. Mm-hmm. You can listen to, you can listen to Nate Bartgotzi and pretend it's uh, sermon preparation. Well, it'll be the most sermon fun prepper. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, I mean, you really put your finger on something that stand up comedians do this best. Um, and, uh, Norm Macdonald does it in the opposite way. He goes on and on about some sort of thing that you're like, where is he going? And then he's got one line that just summarizes the whole thing and you are just cracking up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not too many people can get away with yeah. that. Though. Right. I know it's, 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 a 
I love there was a special, Jerry Seinfeld did a special a, a few years after he quit the TV show. He, he, he let this documentary crew follow him around while he developed a stand-up routine. And it was fascinating. The documentary is only probably an hour long. And he would go up, of course, he could go on any stage, any comedy club in the world and walk right on stage. They'd let him on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's Jerry Seinfeld. And he was at his heyday. And uh, he, would, he walks up the first night, goes out, he tells one joke and, and then leaves the stage. I mean, they cheer and laugh. And then, and then the next night, he, you know, different club or maybe the same club, he goes up, he tells the same joke, but he changes two or three words. And it takes him like, he just keeps, it takes him a year to develop one hour comedy. But it's that, it's that kind of elaborate and practiced and rehearsed, you know, that one word makes a difference, right? Why is the word underwear so funny? I mean, it's, it's hard to put your finger on, but mm-hmm. there, there's that kind of stuff. So changing one word or pausing differently makes all the difference on these jokes. And yeah. they put so much work. I mean, they, they, you know, these guys edit. They're the extreme end of, you know, editors because, because everything matters. And that's why it's hard to do what they do. Yeah. It's also why... They, they they often are very imbalanced and unhappy people because they're obsessive. Yeah. Uh, but Bargazzi, God be praised, seems pretty balanced, you know. And Brian mm-hmm. Regan's like that too. And yeah. and I'm 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 Jim Gaffigan also, though he's such a liberal, it's hugely annoying. Right. But those three guys are all fa- seem have real families that they're devoted to, and 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 seem to be. I and I pray they they do. Yeah you know, come through unscathed. Yeah. Lauren and I uh, watched uh, again. We, I think we watched a special of Bargazzi and he was going on about, about, you know, he's the oldest and he was talking about his younger sister <laughs> and he's just like going on yeah. and on and like, you know, apparently she was raised by her best friends and this is, this is just so typical parents. Right. And then at the end he, he, he right. starts on a different joke, but then he stops and he goes, Oh, and I have a middle brother. And then he keeps going. <laughs> and this is just so typical because the middle one has always forgotten. <laughs> right. I know. I know. He's that's a great, that's a great bit. The whole, I know he, his stuff, he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, he really is. We, yeah. we could talk about him all day. Yeah. All right. Uh, Thanks, Jason. Yep. Thanks. <laughs>